Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, it's like rain on your wedding day. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Polkabon. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind sucks, because we are going to be talking about predictive modeling of weather, weather forecasting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we've talked in the past a lot about weather, and sometimes when I wasn't here. Uh, yes, we had a two-parter about the potential future of weather control with special guest Julie Douglas back in February of 2016. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about that episode is I think in the end we decided after all of our research that really the the best avenue for humans to sort of get a grip on the weather is not to try to control it because in many ways that is a fool's errand. It's physically but, impossible. Yeah, yeah, but to instead try to understand it, just right. to have a better better idea of what's coming your way and when. 
Right. The the further out and the more accurately you can forecast the weather, the better prepared you are for the various eventualities that will unfold. Things like flooding. Like if you know ahead of time that flooding is is almost certainly going to affect a certain region, you can start to take steps yeah. to protect people and property in that area. Sandbags yeah. are an amazingly effective low-tech solution to right. things. Yes, or it may you be, have to put them out there. Yeah. Yes. They don't do much good if they're not there. Yes, that's true. If they're, <laughs> if if they're, they're somewhere else. If they're in a warehouse, that warehouse may be nice and dry, <laughs> but the area that you were hoping to save will be... Rather squishy. Yes. Uh, same, same sort of thing that if you're talking about like a, you're looking ahead at a very long-term forecast and you were to say, oh, it looks like there's not going to be any rain for a, for quite some time. You can start to make plans for that so that you're not stuck in a situation where it happened, but you weren't aware that that was going to, you know, that was going to be the case. Uh, so in other words, we don't necessarily try and control it. We just get a better uh, idea of what is going to happen, so we're more prepared for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and we glanced across that topic in those future weather control episodes. But uh, yeah, so we wanted to talk about that today, and we were also inspired by a video episode that you did, Jonathan, about Bobble. Yeah, the Bay of Bengal Boundary Layer Experiment, or Bobble. Yes. I, I, I said in the video that I consider myself a bobblehead because I'm a huge fan of this project. Uh, the video on that just came out this week. You can check it out on YouTube this very day if you would like to. Yeah. Or on fwthinking.com. Yeah. Uh, but specifically, Bobble is a very particular regional weather predicting project. Uh, right? Yeah. It's a study of how a number of complex factors in the Bay of Bengal come together to create a monsoon season of heavy rains in northern India every year. Yep. And it's of particular interest to researchers because that monsoon season drives the agriculture and the water supply and the energy supply for about a billion people. So one-seventh of the world's population. No big. Yeah. Uh, and, and clearly, variations in the seasonal norm of rainfall, either too wet or too dry, wreak havoc on this region. Mm-hmm. So... What if we could predict those variations before they happen? Disaster could hypothetically be, if not prevented, then then perhaps uh, mitigated. Right, right. Uh, okay, and so besides being a project that could hypothetically change the lives of a billion people, Bobble is really cool because it's kind of a microcosm of weather prediction research in general because it's, it's so multidisciplinary. You've got ships and satellites making classic observations in the bay. You've got robotic submarines that are checking out the situation under the surface. Uh, you've got researchers designing digital simulations to crunch the data, and uh, they'll compare their models to the actual season's results to see where they went right and, and where they need to make improvements. Right. So we're going to talk more about Bobble in detail a little bit later. But first, as per our usual MO, we like to go back and look at how we got to where we are now. Like, like obviously, when you look back to the ways humans tried to forecast the weather centuries ago, their supercomputers were sorely underperforming. Yeah. So yeah, those and, those abacuses d- didn't, right? <laughs> didn't process at quite the same speed. Yeah, exactly. You have all of your little scribes working in parallel, attempting in vain to simulate weather. Oh, well, well and the had... thing they were trying to calculate was how angry the god was. <laughs> so, uh, so there were several Carry steps the along. They were going uh, going off the path in a few different ways. <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's talk about you know kind of. Uh, the ancient approach to forecasting weather and work our way up to what we tend to do today. Okay. Well, I, the, joking aside, there were, of course, lots of just straight-up magical 
thoughts about how to control the weather or, or predict the weather originally. Sure. And so that's, you know, that goes, that's a tradition that goes way, way back into the ancient world. And it has to do a lot with uh, with astrology. Yeah. Um, and as kind of an offshoot of astronomy, but mostly it was astrological. Yeah. yeah. Um, but those uh, those sort of magical predictive interpretations aside, there were actually throughout history plenty of weather superstitions and sort of rules of thumb that actually do have grains of t- truth to them. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a really great article on, on HowStuffWorks.com about this, and I did a What the Stuff video about mm-hmm. it once. And, and it's, it, it's interesting how many of them really do uh, hold water. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes sense because you figure people are paying attention to what has happened, and they realize that there's a pattern where when one says circumstances happen, then typically – you might get a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. And so you start to make a rule about that. And you, you know, it's, in some cases, it can be, you could be completely off base. It's just coincidence. Or you do what I like to call, you know, it's, it's called a, you know, a confirmation bias, but I would call it, I would say the van is always at the corner, uh-huh. which is where whenever there's a van parked at the corner, you notice it. Whenever there's not a van parked at the corner, you don't register it. So to you, the van is always at the corner. Right. Uh, in those cases, obviously, it may be that you've made an observation, but it's a faulty one. Right. However, there are some that are at least somewhat, you know, reliable. Yeah, here's one. Uh, you've probably heard some version of this weather prediction before, and often in couplet form. How about red sky at morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. You've I feel this, right? I feel badly for that one sailor. Right. No, like, right? It's just like like oh man, tomorrow's going to be awful. <laughs> Because it, it says sailor uh-huh. take was singular, so it's one guy. Well, that's the way I always heard it, but <laughs> yeah, no. there are other versions sure, of it. Sure. Uh, but this is old, old, old. It goes way back. People have been using this forecasting rule for at least a couple thousand years, we know, because it shows up in the Bible. Mm. Uh, so it shows up in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, where uh, it says, quote, the, this is in RSV, the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Wow. So obviously, they're trying to make a, a spiritual or religious yeah. point there, but, but just incidentally, Incidentally, in the narrative, at least we know that some people back then were saying this rule. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. huh. So uh, so the author of this passage had heard of this before. And crazily enough, it is partially true. So what's the scientific basis for this? Why would the color of the sky at sunset or sunrise have anything to do with the weather? Well, strongly tinted uh, red light at sunrise and sunset actually tells you something about the contents of the atmosphere between you and the sun. So specifically, it tends to indicate dry air filled with dust and solid particles, which we would call aerosols. So these particles in the air are the cause of the reddening of the light because dust and aerosols in the atmosphere scatter visible light in a way that makes the light turn red. Uh, and in turn, this dry, dusty air tends to indicate that you're in a high-pressure region, which means less cloud formation and less likelihood of a storm. A low-pressure region, on the other hand, would mean that, uh, that there tended to be more cloud formation and more storms. So if you are looking through red-tinted atmosphere to see the sun, 
you're looking through a high-pressure region that's less likely to rain on you. Uh, and and the thing about the atmosphere is that it travels in in the same direction. Well, yeah, and that's why this rule doesn't work everywhere. Because while the sun's path is unidirectional uh, around the Earth, of course, it's actually the Earth's rotation. But metaphorically, the sun's path is unidirectional. I'm going to need to see a site for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the weather tends to travel in different directions depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the Arctic or the Antarctic or in the tropics, the sort of three extreme bands... Uh, weather patterns more often move east to west, and this rule doesn't apply, or in fact, actually, I guess the opposite would apply. Right. But for the mid-latitudes, you know, sort of the temperate zones between the tropics and the Arctic or the Antarctic, this is actually more often true because uh, the weather patterns more often move from west to east. Mm -hmm. And what that means is if you look toward the sunset, you're looking west at the weather that's probably coming your way. Right. And if a red light scattering patch is to the west of you, that's a high pressure area probably that's probably headed your way, meaning the weather will probably be fine. Uh, and of course, why would red sky at morning be a problem? Well, that's because if you're in the mid latitudes again, uh, looking east toward a sunrise, you're seeing the weather that has probably already passed by you. And high and low pressure systems often do trade off in cycles. But you may have noticed that I kept saying the word probably over and over again there. <laughs> yeah. And that's because like all weather prediction, this is probabilistic. Using the system, you can predict the weather better than random guessing, meaning better than with 50% accuracy, but still not anywhere near 100% accuracy. Right. So there could be some mornings where you see a red sky and everything's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful weather. And there might be some evenings where you see red sky and the next morning you're soaking in it. Yeah. So the, the weather, the weather is just very complex. It's, it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult to predict with a hundred percent accuracy, even now using the supercomputers and everything that we have involved in all the data we have. Uh, but this one piece of folk science and weather forecasting uh, is not the only one that turns out to have some basis in truth, right? Uh, yeah, a, a few others that I wanted to touch on because they're they're kind of my favorites. Uh, ring around the moon, rain real soon. Have you guys ever heard this? Is this a thing that you've heard? No. No, not at all? Uh, but I believe you. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's another uh, kind of version of it that goes, when a halo rings the moon or sun, rain's approaching on the run. <laughs> I love it. Pretty sure uh, the Eagles wrote that, right? <laughs> uh. Sounds like something from one of their songs. And 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 the thing that's going on here, it it, it is, it does hold uh, true more than fifty percent of the time. I, I think it's it's a similar probabilistic concept to <laughs> to the red red sky at night, sailors' delight sort of thing. But so so what's going on here is that. Um, when you've got a, a halo that frames the moon or, or the sun, it's produced by by moonlight or sunlight refracting through high wispy clouds that are made of ice crystals, and uh, and those those ice crystals, that type of weather pattern, typically occurs in cirrostratus clouds that often move in ahead of weather fronts where where temperature differentials are going to cause uh, warm air to move upward, condensing moisture, and potentially forming. Rain clouds, hmm. potentially. So, science, science, thumbs up yeah. on that one. And still yeah. not the only uh, moon-related weather, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, folklore, right? Oh, right. sure, sure. Uh, there's also clear moon, frost soon. Huh. Okay. Yeah, which which makes perfect sense because uh, because. 
clear nights do often mean that cold weather is on the way because uh, as far as the planet is concerned, a cloudless sky is sort of like having a bed without blankets. Uh, <laughs> you know, d- during the day, uh, the Earth absorbs sunlight and, and can converts it into into heat that we all appreciate at, to certain degrees. Um, when, when the sun sets, the surface begins radiating that heat back out and lacking clouds to capture the heat and snuggle it in all, all tight and close, the, the surface and the lower atmosphere grow increasingly cold. In fact, mm-hmm. I think in a Tech Stuff episode, uh, I talked about this as a means of creating ice in certain regions where you'd leave out a pan, a shallow pan of water yeah, yeah. outside because uh-huh. the heat radiates out and it actually becomes ice that way. In certain regions of the world, that's how it was done before refrigeration reached those areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. My favorite one, though, uh, has to do with cows. <laughs> uh, of course. There is, there's folklore about... Uh, or, or, or not like a folk saying, but yeah, uh, that cows will lie down when it's about to rain. Hmm. And and I I will I will admit that cows lie down for probably many reasons. <laughs> like they're tired. Uh, <laughs> but, but um but but this one but this one might be due to to body heat. Okay? Uh cows tend to stand more often when they're overheating, uh you know, in order to breeze everything out, right? Sure, sure yeah. yeah. So so a seated cow could arguably mean that uh, the weather is cooling down, and therefore, a storm is a brewin. Oh, okay. I also like in the notes you have, this one may have a leg to stand on. There, there are so many puns. <laughs> Cal's laying down. In, in this in this How Stuff Works article, yeah. and I, 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 yeah. I didn't write it. So. No, no, you oddly, didn't. I checked. Oddly enough, yeah. <laughs> it was not, t'was not I responsible. Uh, but... But there, but there are definitely some some more systematic approaches that people have come up with over the years. Sure, uh, apart from just uh, sayings and folk wisdom, one big one through in history is uh, Aristotle's Meteorologica. That's Aristotle's hugely influential treatise on winds, water, weather, and some other stuff like earthquakes. Like much of Aristotle, it is both startlingly intelligent and uh, hilariously wrong about lots of things. Sure. Uh, I enjoyed the section on how earthquakes are caused by evaporation of rains that have soaked into the earth and uh, exhalations of breath from the ground. Uh, but uh, until a few hundred years ago, I think Aristotle's works were sort of the Western world's gold standard for knowledge about the causes of weather. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, fairly recent times that we started being able to do much better. Yeah. I mean, uh, generally speaking, you start getting into like the the mid to late Renaissance and you start yeah. seeing some other thinkers propose alternatives to some of Aristotle's ideas. But it. Yeah, his his approach or his uh, his observations and his his uh, uh, writings held sway for centuries. Yeah, yeah, um, and and some of those new ideas came about uh, alongside uh, changes in concepts about physics and also uh, about astronomy, like like greater knowledge of astronomy, mm-hmm. um, up to and including the publication of almanacs, which were very very popular publications back in the day. Apparently, the only thing that outsold almanacs in the 17th century in England was was the Bible. Hmm. So lots of people were purchasing these things. Um, and back in the late 1700s and early 1800s, a couple different mathematicians slash astronomers started publishing yearly farmers' almanacs here in the, in the States, in what would be the United States. Right. Later on, the North America 
continent. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the formulae, the, the, the formulas that they use in order to make these predictions are to this day guarded as family or company secrets. Yeah, it turns out like it, you, it could be something like consulting the family cat. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and like intensely guarded. I love I, I love stories about uh, Old Farmer's Almanac and, uh, and the Farmer's Almanac, both of which are punctuated slightly differently in terms of the possessive S. Uh-huh. But just the lore around all of this is, is delightful. In the case of, of one of the two almanacs, I, for, I forget which one, uh, there is a Caleb Weatherby who's sort of like the James Bond of of this of this company because Caleb Weatherby is not his real name. Mm-hmm. I I'm not sure if it's a dude. Uh I there've been this series of Caleb Weatherbys who have been the one entrusted with the knowledge of how the of how the almanac does its stuff. Oh, it's like Cecil Adams. Yes, of straight <laughs> yeah. of the straight dope. Yeah, uh-huh. there have been many Cecil Adams. Yeah. Uh, so, but so, so no one no one knows exactly how they make their predictions, but they supposedly take stuff like planetary positions and sunspots and lunar cycles and tidal patterns all into account. And I get the distinct idea reading stories about this that meteorologists uh, find find almanacs like this rather quaint. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, what one researcher who looked into the accuracy of these kind of things found that they get their long ranging predictions because they make predictions a, a year or two out uh, correct about twenty five percent of the time. Is that a high number or a low number? Like how much variability is there in what they could be predicting? Yeah, you uh, can't because you wouldn't say like is that better than chance? Because it's hard <laughs> to say without knowing all the variables. Oh sure, uh, I'm not sure. They they claim to get it right about eighty percent of the time, and <laughs> yeah. and that is that is. So in- you're incorrect. saying there's a gap? Yeah. Yes. But luckily, we didn't. We we haven't had to continue relying just on stuff like this forever because mm-hmm. eventually, uh, physics, yay! People started figuring out how hydrodynamics and thermodyna- thermodynamics both work. And once humanity got a, a really good grip on these concepts, strangely enough, around the same time that the American Farmers Almanac started publication. Uh, the, the science of meteorology could take off. And uh, by the early 1900s, a Norwegian physicist by the name Wilhelm Birkness devised the first known seven equation formula for uh, for using observations of existing weather conditions to solve for future conditions, taking taking into consideration like like pressure and temperature and humidity and then three aspects of atmospheric motion. That forms the foundation, definitely. I mean, the more information we have, obviously, the better picture picture we have of what's going on right now and the more um uh, the more accurate we can make a forecast for the future. Of course, the further out you go from the current uh uh, scenario the current the current conditions uh, small differences in uh, in what you've predicted versus what actually happens add up tremendously yes yeah well I mean it's a it's a sort of principle of physics that you can extrapolate on a very simple scale or on a very uh, huge scale on the simple scale imagine uh, aiming an arrow at a target if you shift your aim a millimeter over and the target's a foot of way a foot away it's not going to make much of a difference if the target's a hundred feet away it will make a difference right. Right. So same sort of idea is that, you know, the the temporal distance as opposed to physical distance, yeah. it, it does make a big difference. Uh, but of course, once you get into the modern history of, uh, of our technological and scientific capabilities for predicting weather, one big difference, of course, is just going to be the scale of, of observation, increasing mm-hmm. the number and accuracy of, of observational platforms to collect data about the weather. So we have more information to work with. 
uh, and that's uh, pretty easy. But an- another thing is that we can sometimes overlook the simple ways that common technological innovations help us uh, in specific ways, and one would be communication technology, such as the telegraph originally, and then like the telephone, fax, and uh, and the internet. And these have allowed people to better understand global weather patterns in real time by rapidly sharing and comparing information about local weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, computer science also allowed prediction to, to greatly advance, starting in the 50s and 60s and really ramping up over the past, say, like 20 to 30 years, uh, along with the rate of our processing power. So... I mean, perhaps, obviously, as our computational ability and our observational ability have increased, so has our forecast accuracy. There was an analysis that was published in Nature in 2015, and according to that, the forecast accuracy for for the next three to ten days of weather has improved by about a day per decade, Um, meaning that right now our ten-day forecasts are as accurate as nine-day forecasts were in the early aughts. So, uh, in other words, every decade we go by, we're getting one day better. Yeah. I, I like it. Yeah. So, if I can figure out whether or not I need to carry an umbrella with me uh, on Friday when it's Monday and, and be reasonably certain that that is, in fact, the right answer, the better. Because uh, – I'm not carrying it if I don't have to. Right. And a decade from now, you'll you'll be able to know pretty well on Tuesday. I'm looking forward to that. Crazy. Uh, so my suggestion, Jonathan, is that you need to get a cooler umbrella that you feel better about carrying all the time. Like maybe like a penguin's umbrella, you know, Ooh. that shoots machine machine gun fire or has a big sword that comes out the end of it. I uh I have a Blade Runner umbrella. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's great. We'll do glowing. Yeah. Yeah, I've got one of those. Um, So who is really in charge of gathering and crunching all this data? I mean, I'm assuming when I turn on the local news and I see the local uh, weather correspondent on the news, that person hasn't personally been responsible for gathering and analyzing all that information. Yes, he has. Oh, certainly not. Or she. No, 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 no. The guy I'm imagining <laughs> yeah, is yeah. very specific. That right. guy launched the satellite uh, <laughs> and has collected the data. He built all of the computers himself. Uh, no, uh, modernly, weather prediction is a joint public, like governmental and private in- industry type of business uh, because the, the satellites, the computers, the software, and the and the human compilation of all of this data that, that go into it is is. Each, each of those separately are huge, expensive arms of, of the venture. So, and, and going into it, you know, like, of, of course, you've got local news stations, which are private companies that are reporting on weather, but it's also a public service. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just about personal convenience. It's absolutely a very critical public service about getting information about uh, big storms, uh, danger, tornadoes, hurricanes, stuff like that, out to the public. Um, and it's also partially a, a tool for commerce. The more that companies can learn about what the weather is going to do, the the better that they can adjust whatever it is that they need to adjust, depending on what's Oh, up. sure. Like, if, if you're part of a shipping company, whether you're shipping stuff across land or sea, you need to know these sort of things because that can have a real impact on everything from a delivery date to the safety of the people and the products that you're moving. Weather is important. I mean, it's important to have this uh, as accurate a picture of what's going to happen. And, of course, the further out you can do that, the more beneficial it is for 
everybody. Yeah. So that kind of leads us over into the discussion of some of the, the current attempts to get an even deeper, more keen understanding of the factors that influence weather. Um, and that kind of brings us also to Bobble, to that project we were talking about off uh, the coast of India. So Bobble is pretty cool in that it's it's relying upon uh, multiple sources to gather information, uh, all so that we can get a, a better understanding of the monsoon season in India. So that includes satellite data, uh, atmospheric measurements courtesy of an FAAM aircraft, and I'll go into that in a second, and some floats that are carrying scientific equipment, as well as those underwater robots that Lauren mentioned that are incredibly cool. I was so interested to hear mostly just about how they move through the water because it's a brilliant and uh, simple means of propulsion. But first of all, the project is a collaboration between uh, India researchers and scientists from the UK, specifically the University of East Anglia and the University of Reading. And the research will take place during the 2016 monsoon season, which has technically started as we record this podcast. It's mm-hmm. June and July of 2016. So the monsoon season is India's rainy season. Uh, India gets a lot of its rain during the season. 80% of the rain that falls in India falls during the monsoon season. And there is a lot of it. Yeah, we're talking 10 meters annually of rain. 10 meters. It's 33 feet or so. Uh, In some places, it's up to 11 meters. It depends on the region of India. Sure. Um, So the project's goal is to gain a deeper understanding of the factors that influence this monsoon season. And that way we can make better predictive models of what areas of India are going to get what amount of rain. And that will help subsistence farmers plan out their their farming uh, to make certain that they take the best advantage of that. It also will help in the case of figuring out this particular region might be very susceptible to flooding and we need to take measures to protect the people who live there, right? So there's there stands to be a really incredible benefit to, like we said earlier, a up to a billion people. Yeah, uh, to, to cracking this code, to figuring out better how it works and therefore how to predict it. Right. So first step, of course, is you got to get the data, right? You have to collect the data before you can do anything with it. And that's where all of that equipment I mentioned comes into play. Uh, so first we have the FAAM aircraft. FAAM stands for Facility for Airborne Atmospheric Measurements. So it's flying through the atmosphere, gathering data on the atmosphere as it moves through. Mm-hmm. It's pretty... Uh, interesting. You need to take a little look at the picture of, of these things. There's a special refitted uh, BAE Systems aircraft out of the UK. And uh, it's the result of a collaboration between the Natural Environmental Research Council and the Met Office in the United Kingdom. Now, the FAAM has a collection of sophisticated instrumentation aboard it. They can uh, Those instruments can measure everything from radiative transfer, so essentially the way heat is moving through the troposphere, uh, the chemical composition of the atmosphere, humidity, temperature, turbulence, cloud physics, and more. Uh, that turbulence and the cloud physics, that's really important. Things like vertical shear that has a huge impact on weather patterns. And it's one of those things that we need to have a lot of data on in order to really understand what's happening. Uh, the team will actually compare the data gathered by the aircraft to that from the other sources, the floats, the weather satellites, and underwater robots to get a complete picture of what's happening in the bay during the monsoon season. Uh, so some of that other equipment, that the Argo floats. Now, Argo floats are uh, deployed all around the world, not just off the coast of India. In fact, there are more than 3,000 of them floating in the oceans. 
and they measure temperature, uh, ocean velocity, so the, the actual velocity of the water, uh, the salinity of the upper 2,000 meters of the ocean. Scientists primarily use Argo to monitor climate change. So they're doing it to see how conditions are changing over time to get a better idea of what is the actual practical effect of climate change. Uh, the data data gathered by Argo is publicly available within a few hours of its collection. So um, the scientists on this project are going to rely, obviously, on the ones that are specifically off the coast of India. Then you've got those underwater robots. They're called sea gliders. Sea gliders. They look kind of like... Um, Almost like a, a torpedo shape. Mm-hmm. Some sometimes they're referred to as like an uh, a robotic dolphin, which is odd because they don't really have like they're not jointed where you have right, a they tail. They have a flipper situation. No, they've no. got they've got a pair of wings that can tilt, uh-huh. but they use changes in buoyancy and those wings to create forward momentum, so they can move through the water. And they have a battery inside of them that can actually shift around as ballast and that will allow them to change their pitch and roll huh. so they can dive down they can they can move through the water they do so very slowly compared to say a propeller but unlike a propeller it's incredibly energy efficient yeah it doesn't have to use a lot of energy to change uh its its position because of the buoyancy and use of its own battery as ballast yeah so, oh, so, so therefore, if, if it's energy efficient, that means that it can travel quite a great distance, probably on a single charge, without having to go back to home base and uh, and be juiced up again. Exactly, it can stay underwater for a long time and can travel a great distance. Uh, really, it, it essentially only has to surface if you do have to recharge it, uh, or for it to beam the data back. It's got a radio antenna at the tip of it that will poke out of the water and it beams that information, and the team can gather it. Uh, it's really a neat looking device and there are videos online that you can watch of it in action. Um, they, they're a little expensive. They're about 150,000 pounds sterling each. Uh, the University of East Anglia used to have six of them and then lost two of them. Oh no. One of them got run over by a boat. What? Uh, a ship, really. Well, because these things tend to stay fairly close to the surface in order to beam information back. And what, and they don't move very quickly. And they're hard to see. They're not huge, right? They're about the size of a person. But if you're operating a large ship, like a, a cargo vessel, you may not see it. And a cargo vessel collided with one and destroyed it. The second one was lost in Arctic ice, I believe. So... Uh, but the, there are actually seven of them in operation for the Bobble project. Uh, so really interesting. They also can hold lots of different types of sensors, not just ones to measure the, uh, the, the various factors in the ocean, but others as well for, for things like marine biology. Now, of course, in the case of Bobble, marine biology was not really one of the things they were necessarily concerned with. So that's not the, that's not in the, uh, instrumentation um, for those particular sea gliders. Instead, they're looking at sensors that are going to measure stuff like uh, the turbidity of the water, the temperature, salinity, and the oxygen content. Now, you collect all this data with the floats, the right. robots, uh-huh. the satellites, the aircraft. And now you know everything. Now you got to do stuff with it. <laughs> That's the problem. It's like, like, for one thing, like, you know, just just that information alone is incredibly valuable, but without knowing how it all interacts with one another, which factors are more important? Which ones are really impacting the monsoon season the most? Which are causative versus 
just correlative, right? Like there may be some things that change. Maybe they're changed because the monsoons are moving through, not because they change and then cause the monsoon, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got to determine all this. You have to crunch all that information. And uh, that's going to be the next big challenge is grabbing all that data and doing something useful with it so that then you can take that knowledge and communicate it to people so that you can make actual uh, real-world actions based upon that that data. And this is where we start to shift over to a very important tool in weather forecasting and uh, weather modeling and climate science supercomputers. Uh, yeah, because if you haven't cottoned on yet, the problem of weather is is a big data problem. Yes, it's a yeah, it's it's a huge data problem because we know lots of different variables affect weather. We know those variables change greatly over spans of time, right? So you've got a lot of information and that information is constantly in flux. So how do you process that in a reasonable way? Supercomputers have proven to be a really important element of this uh, analysis. So part of uh, understanding this is knowing what a supercomputer super really is. It's not just a really beefed up PC, right? It's not. <laughs> it's a beefed up Mac. It's not a beefed up Mac either. No. no. Um, also known as Lay Big Mac. <laughs> the Big Mac. Is it a yes. beefed up John Hodgman? Yeah. It's none of those things. Okay. Uh, although, I mean... Uh, Mr. Hodgman, if you're listening, you don't need to beef up. We like you the way you are. So supercomputers uh, tend to be organized in a way where you've got nodes, which is essentially either a CPU or a GPU, um, and those are organized into blades. Those blades are further organized into racks, which are cooled in some interesting way, usually water-cooled, because you get that many processors in a place together, they generate a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Heat and electronics over the long term are not good friends with one another. So the end effect is you've got a supercomputer that acts kind of like a multi-core processor. So if you have a multi-core processor, you might wonder, well, how does this make my computer faster? Well, it works really well for certain types of computational problems. Right. Those would be problems that could be broken up into smaller bits. Right. It works less well for problems where you have to solve one problem before you can start on the next problem. Right. So if you were to have the first type where you have a problem you can split up into little bits, you can think of that as imagine you've got uh, a – I like to use this analogy. You've got a math class. Mm -hmm. And in that math class is a math genius. And then you've got a bunch of decent math students. But they're not of genius level. You've got a math problem that's that first type, one that could be broken up into several smaller problems. And you give the math genius the full thing, and you give each of the math, the good math students, part of that problem. The group of good math students are more likely going to finish it before the math genius, even though the math genius has a, an, a grasp of mathematics that far uh, outpaces that of the rest of the class. If it's the second type of problem, like you were talking, Joe, then the math genius is more likely to finish it because you can't divide that problem up and and give each little piece to all the different math students. So the math students represent that multi-core processor, right? With a supercomputer, you've just got thousands of these processors, like more than 80,000 for some big supercomputers, right? (laughs) And so... You take this problem, the problem being here are all these variables in weather, 
and I want my solution is I want to create a weather simulation so that I can forecast what will happen in the future based upon the current situation now. So that's your first step. You you create your model. Uh-huh. Then you look and see if your model's any good. <laughs> <laughs> One way you can do this actually is to feed in data from the past. So let's say that you have collected a huge amount of information from two weeks ago. Right. Well, you already know what happened after that because uh, it's in the past. Uh, yeah. Sure. So you can you can feed all of the information from two weeks in the past into the computer and say, oh, if I modeled this a certain way, then do I get like, – like how close do I get to what actually occurred right. after that first week? Right. And if, it, and if it turns out that it didn't come very close, you start making adjustments. You start saying, all right, this one factor that I thought was really important turns out maybe it's not so important. And this other thing that I kind of overlooked turns out is much more instrumental than I had anticipated. Yeah. And and this is a, a long process, but you, you refine – that simulation. This is a cool way in which weather prediction, I think, has the potential to be a constantly improving science because unlike some disciplines, uh, this is not a field in which testing the predictive power of your theory or in this case your algorithm is difficult because compare it to something like psychology where the results of your experiment might often be very fuzzy and indeterminate or like particle physics where you might have to test the predictions of your theory uh, by building some giant experimental instrument that operates at the giga electron volt scale or mm-hmm. something like that. The weather's not like that. We have tons of data on it, always new data coming in. We've got plenty already, and we have lots of good ways of measuring it already. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> the, the problem is really that we have a wealth. We have two. We, have, we, are, we are befuddled by our wealth of information. Right. Yeah. No, you, I just like, I just like, the, like we have plenty of it already. And like, I was just thinking like, well, not much weather today. <laughs> <laughs> Had a lot of weather yesterday. Oh, what's yeah. the, which, uh, uh, oh, there, it's from the Mystery Science Theater episode, uh, Pod People. Oh, where, one of the best. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the characters asks, uh, uh, do you think the weather will hold? And one of the viewers comments, no, I think it's just going to stop. That was Tom Servo <laughs> who said that. I remember that. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic episode. Uh, so Tangent, go watch that episode of MST3K. It's one of the best ones they ever did. Uh-huh. Back to back to the uh, to weather forecasting. So according to Science Daily, uh, supercomputers spend about equal amount of time running their simulations to uh, assimilating new real-world data into the models. So in yeah. other words, half the time you're simulating weather, the other half the time you're adjusting that simulation so that it more accurately reflects the real world. And as we get a better understanding of the things that affect weather, we can refine that. Um, a study in Japan ran a global atmosphere simulation and found that a, a weather invent- event in one part of the world can affect other weather events thousands of kilometers away. And so it starts to dawn on you that in order for you to accurately forecast a local weather uh, system, you have to actually look well beyond the immediate region because there are factors that will affect that local weather system that are happening really far away. And it may be that it's it's something that's not, I mean going to instantaneously affect your local weather, but it will have an impact. So maybe something that would have normally been a a rainstorm, but that's it, could potentially turn into something much more severe like tornadoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting. And the study included 10,240 simulations. And they divided the global model into 112 kilometer sectors. So like a grid uh, of 112 kilometers. Now, 
that's also important because the the smaller those squares are in the grid, the more data you're feeding into the simulation and the more powerful the supercomputer has to be. Yeah, and of course, we're always expanding our uh, our hardware and software capabilities. So in January 2016, the NOAA announced a major upgrade in its weather and climate operational supercomputer system. Uh, and th- this was interesting. The two computers they have are called Luna and Surge. Surge. Hmm. Not like the soda, like a wave. Well, yeah, like the soda. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Luna and Surge are based in Florida and Virginia, and uh, each one runs at 2.89 petaflops for a combined 5.78 petaflops of computing capacity. And that is up from the system's capacity of just 776 teraflops. Nothing to sniff at, but... Uh, significantly lower last year. Yeah, flops, by the way, stands for floating... Uh, floating point operations yeah, per second. Pro- exactly. <clears throat> so uh, in the uh, press release, uh, the NOAA administrator, Dr. Catherine Sullivan, said that this upgrade would help the organization deal with, quote, the tidal wave of data that new observing platforms will generate. Just once again, I think we've sort of said this before, but uh, indicating that the problem in weather prediction these days is not a data problem, but it's an analysis problem. It's mm-hmm. the uh, what we do with the data that's where the bottleneck is. Right, right. So uh, also from NOAA, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in other words, uh, they're running 15-hour forecasts using something called the High-Resolution Rapid Refresh Model, also known as the HRRR in meteorological circles. So if you have a meteorologist in your family, just ask them how the HRRR is going. Or the HRRR. <laughs> yeah, the HRRR. Or if you want to put model in there, it's the HRRM. Anyway, <laughs> the model divides the map, uh, the global map, up into three-kilometer sections. So you remember I was talking about the, the Japanese study that was 112 kilometers. So this one's more precise. It's divided the, the entire world into smaller sections, which increases the amount of data significantly that they have to handle in order to make this 15-hour forecast. That's uh-huh. also why it's only 15 hours out, because to to extend the forecast further would require even greater processing challenges, yeah. uh, which they're working to overcome and slowly push that number further and further out. Um, but it is really interesting that they are looking at the world in three-kilometer sections. It blows my mind. Because you think how huge uh, an amount of data that must be that they're dealing with consistently. And they're refreshing this hour by hour to look another 15 hours ahead. Um, So in Europe, uh, weather satellites are actually more advanced than the ones that we're using here in the United States right now. But that will change. Uh, The U.S. has plans to launch the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite R, also known as Gozer. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. Did it I, come in the form of a giant slore? Yeah, it was Gozer the Destructor. Um, yeah, I'm having Ghostbusters flashbacks on that. But it's scheduled to launch in the fall of this year. It will actually become the most advanced meteorological satellite in orbit for at least a short time, finally mm-hmm. outpacing the ones that are, are currently uh, over Japan and Europe. Uh, um, other other recent news involved. Uh, in, in 2015, IBM spent about $2 billion acquiring basically everything in the weather company except for the weather channel itself. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're apparently going to pit Watson against all that data and just kind of see what they can do. I Interesting. hope Watson takes it down. Watson, Watson will take all that data and make yet another bizarre and 
uh, unimaginable recipe that involves pot stickers that right. don't have any of the ingredients in them that they claim well, yeah. to have. Watson, <laughs> is it going to rain next year? First, grill your lettuce. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. I still think we have to each take one of those recipes, make it, and bring it in. We never did do that. Yeah, we oh, didn't. man. Yeah. yeah. We should do a live show where we subject each other to to cooking. Grill your pureed olives. I think we all we all will need to have uh, chef hats and and aprons with with humorous sayings on them. Uh, that's that's what I suggest. All right. Well, we'll we'll work on that. At any rate, let's look at again, kind of further off. Like, what is the future going to bring? So once we have these more advanced satellites, we're we're constantly working on building better supercomputers which often are used for this kind of thing, as well as other branches of science as well. Uh, so for one thing, as we get this greater understanding of the global influences of weather, we can, we can improve our forecasting. When we understand that an event happening thousands of miles away will have an impact on the weather in our area, and we have a better way of, of predicting what that impact will be, that's going to benefit people in ways that we can't even really get a grip on right now. Um, one of the other things we have to remember is that it's a lot easier to predict uh, weather in general that is severe weather. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you see this on lots of different sites that are talking about meteorology. They'll say like, oh, you know, we can predict general weather systems out maybe as far as a couple of weeks or further. But when you start getting into the uh, the the possibility of severe weather it's closer to like five days and each day out is less accurate than the day before which means that when you're looking at the the tail end of that forecast you have to keep that in mind um, i try to do that all the time when i'm thinking like oh i'm going on vacation in two weeks let me see what the weather's going to be like in 10 days and and often i uh i i go in with a false sense of security or i'm end up preparing for a rainstorm that ha- just doesn't happen. Uh, but as we get more information, we get better at anticipating these things and predicting them accurately. Uh, obviously, this could help lot in lots of ways, like in that commerce that we were talking about or in travel. Oh, absolutely. Having better weather prediction could have all kinds of, of commercial and environmental bonuses. Like imagine being able to reroute flights around bad weather systems before storms hit, uh, thus preventing having to sit around at the airport all day or, or having to have your flight canceled uh, or, or even allowing pilots to save on fuel by plotting better courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, as, as Julie brought up in our prior weather episode, Episodes, uh, changes in weather change our buying habits. Uh, supermarkets could plan to stock up on those fryer chickens or whatever it is uh, way more in advance. Yeah. Apparently, apparently during certain disasters, fried chicken just flies off the shelves. Unless, uh, which is weird because chicken rarely flies even when it's not fried. Right. But the, also there's the, the issue here in Atlanta. I made the joke in our notes that it's not really a joke. It's actually just a fact that if there's even the hint of snow – you can expect a run on supermarkets for all the milk, bread, sometimes uh, bleach. Bleach is big. Milk and bread, yeah. And then people get it home. And Toilet it's like, paper. What do you do with this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never buy this to begin with, yeah. but now have French like a, toast. Yeah, exactly. Lots of French toast. Yeah. That's what we're going to be having, kids. So, uh, yeah, but they, having those predicting, those, those better forecasts means that, you know, you can actually prepare for that sort of stuff and, uh, and hopefully not encounter things like shortages or um, or or ha- you know where people go to a store and then they realize that they're out of luck because 
everybody has rushed it. If you've got more time to prepare for that, then you can build up your inventory. Yeah, and uh, make, make better profit, and people can be happy that they can, you know, get their bread and milk and eggs and make that French toast. And then when it doesn't snow, everyone complains about it. The bread, milk, and eggs go bad, but you don't care. You sold them already. Yeah. Yeah. Capitalism. So, uh... It was fun to kind of look into this. I always, I always really enjoy discussing uh, the idea behind weather science. I'm not big on talking about the weather in general, but weather science to me is really neat because you start to realize how incredibly complicated it is and how much energy are the the energy that are, that happens to be in these big weather systems. Like, you know, we we if you talk about hurricanes, the amount of energy in a hurricane is phenomenal. Uh, right. as, as Lauren has so succinctly put it before, there's more wind than truck. Fair enough. So uh, to <laughs> me, that's why I love talking about these things and why I, I felt that it was fun to to come back and revisit this. Plus, I wasn't in the last couple, so I really wanted to yeah. kind of jump into it. But guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of our podcast, let us know. Send us an email. That address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter. The handle there is FWThinking. Or search FWThinking in Facebook. Our profile should pop right up. You can leave us a message there. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 live march 20th from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order. 
Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.